Welcome to California Groundbreakers, a place that sets trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. Doing live in-person events is off the table for a while, but we're still doing conversations with Californians doing groundbreaking things during this pandemic time. So here is our new podcast series, The New Normal in California. Over the next few weeks, or however long it takes before we get the all clear to leave our houses again, we'll be looking at the ways our coronavirus-affected lives are changing over the short and long term, and talking with Californians making significant change in this new normal. If you like what you hear and want to help us keep producing more of these, consider making a podcast creation donation. Click on the Support California Groundbreakers box on our SoundCloud podcast hub page or on the Donate tab of our website, californiagroundbreakers.org. In this episode, we're talking with a couple of everyday people who are doing amazing things in this new normal. They're using their free time and their business skills to create essential products for workers on the front lines. And, at the same time, they've rallied their local communities to help out with needed supplies, skills, and financial support. First up, we're talking with Chris Steller, owner of Dry Diggins Distillery. He pivoted from brewing spirits for cocktails to making hand sanitizers and disinfectant sprays for California medical workers and law enforcement officers. In the second half, Alan Puccinelli tells us how he used his business skills as the owner of a 3D printing startup to create Operation Shields Up, an organization entirely run and funded by volunteers to make protective face shields for hospital workers. It started out making them for Sacramento area hospitals, but it is now sending them all the way to the East Coast. Join us for our conversations with Chris and Alan about how and why they're doing these altruistic efforts, what they've learned along the way, and how you can help with their projects. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode three of our podcast series, The New Normal in California. My name is Vanessa Richardson. I'm the executive director of California Groundbreakers. Today, we're talking with a couple of ordinary people who are doing amazing things in this time of COVID-19 pandemic. Like most of us, they had their regular day job just five weeks ago, six weeks ago, and now they're using those day job skills in a radically different way, making gear and equipment for essential workers in the medical fields and law enforcement fields. And by doing that, they've inspired others in the community to help out by giving their their own time, their own useful day job skills, and their financial support. And these two people we're talking with today run their own businesses. And because they're not making much or any money right now through those through their pandemic-focused efforts, they're donating all their equipment for, for free, they're probably feeling as uncertain as many of us when it comes to what the future looks like financially. But as our guest that we're going to be speaking with just now, Chris Steller, told the Sacramento Business Journal last month, quote, if this is what puts me out of business, I'll feel okay about it, unquote. And that, that quote stuck with me and was very inspiring to me. And that's one reason why I decided that we should do a podcast uh, with Chris on board, as well as other people who are doing amazing things like this and how we can help. So a little bit about uh, uh, Chris. He owns Dry Diggings Distillery in El Dorado Hills. And up until, I believe it was March 15th, that was the day that Governor Gavin Newsom ordered all California bars and nightclubs to close, Dry Diggings was making spirits like vodka, gin, and rum. So now Dry Diggings has a new focus. It's making hand sanitizers and disinfecting sprays for essential frontline workers in the local areas, Amador County, El Dorado County, and Sacramento counties. And that includes law enforcement, firefighters, ambulances, and hospitals that are getting the uh, sanitizer and sprays that he makes. So again, with that Sacramento Business Journal story that came out on March 20th, Chris had delivered 50 gallons of the products and says he's capable of making a lot more. So I wanted to find out how those efforts have been going, what help he's received, what he has learned, how we can help, and what he sees for the future of dry diggings. So welcome, Chris, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me. It's, it's great to uh, get the message out about what's been going on around here. Yes, and so I know you're a pretty busy guy these days, although I'm sure Dry Diggings Distillery, you know, that's a full-time job. I wanted to give 
I wanted you to give us a little uh, idea of what of what you were doing six weeks ago or up until March 15th, that day that uh, Gavin Newsom ordered all bars and nightclubs to close down. What was your life like pre-pandemic with dry diggings? Well, it's funny because when you said March 15th, I, I had to look at my calendar for a minute because I think we were making this prior to that, but okay. was, we eased into it. Um, I literally, our first batch that we made was in a five gallon bucket. And I remember taking some of our really good alcohol and saying, well, let's give it a shot. We'll see if anybody wants it. And uh, it's taken off from there. So five gallons to what we're doing today. Big, big change. So what sparked the idea to do that in the first place? Well, it was kind of, uh, I was probably like a lot of people thinking and saying, this is just the flu. It's just another thing that's going to hit. It's not that big a deal. And then about the time we started hearing more about the cruise ships and some of the, the seriousness that was going on over in China, because we do uh, some business with China, we were hearing it was far more serious than that. And it just kind of hit us that what if this becomes a situation where it does come over here and it spreads so quickly, what are we going to do? And we had heard some other distillers. I'd love to say it was our idea. We had heard some other distillers back East and up in Washington and Oregon. And I think we were among the first in California. Uh, but again, the dates are such a blur and it doesn't really matter who was first. It was just like a, our industry is pretty quick. Uh, when you look at who distilleries are owned and run by, it's a pretty maverick group. So did you know how to make hand sanitizer before you started? And then when you decided to ramp this up, how did you ensure that you were doing it correctly? Did you need to get help? Did you need to get uh, experts to come in or work with you online? to produce, you know, medically approved uh, hand sanitizer and spray? That's what's unique about our operation. Uh, my distiller uh, used to work for a very large operation and has his master's degree in chemical engineering. And then we have another brand that works out of our location and their company is called New Alchemy Spirits. And they have, uh, it's three guys, uh, one is a PhD, one is a master's. Uh, they, those two were actually clinical scientists. And then their third partner works for a large hospital network and is actually in the medical field. So between those four uh, handling the medical side and then me in my background with uh, Cal OSHA, Fed OSHA, and all the things that I was involved with, with in my past career for workplace safety, I knew who to reach out to to get formulas and to get approvals and, and how to move this quickly into a finished product. So we each handled our own separate sides of it, and it came together rather quickly. Like in a week's time? Like how many days do you think from so start we, to? You know, probably four hours. Wow. Yeah, literally we... That first batch we made, we made just kind of looking at what, what is in hand sanitizer. And once we kind of figured out that it wasn't a very difficult product to make, uh, we, were, we did some tests. And then it, while we were doing that, that's when we got the, the FDA, the WHO, and the CDC formulas and found out that all three were different. But we found the commonality to them and then came up, we're probably on our fourth or fifth variation of the formula uh, so that we keep up with whatever the latest approved formula is. So walk us through, you're saying it's, it's relatively easy to make hand sanitizer. In a distillery, how does that work? What's the step-by-step -step process in layman's terms for making it? Well, that's the thing. I would caution, it, it's easy to make if you own a distillery. Um, if you are at home and you're reading a lot of these uh, recipes online or watching all these YouTube videos, 
be really careful about who's giving that information out because a lot of times what I've seen and what I've heard is not accurate. Uh, what we're doing is using 95% uh, alcohol. Uh, so we have had some batches that were 200%. So we're starting with extremely high unavailable to the public type alcohol. The, the fuel uh, additive is not in it. So we're not using the typical, what would go into an 80, E85 fuel for your car. It's we're using food grade alcohol. It's uh, quite a bit more expensive, uh, but it has the chemical properties that we need and in some ways, it's actually higher quality than what's needed. Okay. So I, I feel like what's the minimum amount of alcohol that needs to be in a standard bottled hand sanitizer? The percentage is what, 60 or 70%? It depends whose recipe you use. We currently are doing back at 80%, which is what we started at. And then people were saying, no, you can drop down and be in the 60s. And then we moved back up to 70. And it just worked out that the, the safest approach was to go back to 80%. And that's what we've been doing our larger volumes at is so that the higher the percentage, it's a little bit harder on your skin, but it's the most effective. The higher the alcohol percentage, the better it, it doesn't leave anything behind. So for this high, high quality, high alcohol um, sanit sanitizer and spray that you're giving out, who's getting, who's getting these products now? So we started with the first responders and the, the uh, people that were really out in the public. So we started with fire, police, uh, emergency room nurses, surgical nurses, and then we, we pretty much limited to that because the need was so overwhelming in the beginning that we just didn't supply anybody else. And we had to be very uh, strict about that because everybody needed it. Um, everybody was calling. But then the second phase was we rolled into the people that were working in uh, the hospitals that maybe weren't in that front line uh, but we're also doing the thing that uh, was interesting. They started the testing out in the parking lots and doing drive-through testing. And so we thought those people should have it along with the rest of hospital, police, fire, and ambulance services. And then the, the second phase rolled into, uh, well, that was the second phase. The third phase rolled into restaurant people, the postal service, FedEx, UPS, package delivery, all those kind of people that also didn't have access, but that we didn't necessarily review as first responders. So we, we changed the terminology to frontline personnel, people that were out in the field. And that was the, the, the big jump uh, there. But then this past week, we opened it up to a lot of the essential workers that were doing, say, construction work or um, Okay, we're back. We had some technical glitches. It is the era of pandemic time. So Chris is back with us on the phone. At least where I lost him was when I was asking him about the question about who uses the, uh, the products that he makes now. We start with frontline workers. And now we're moving on to, I guess, the latest, the latest group that has uh, entered the customer base are essential workers. So Chris, pick up where you left off there about who's, who you added just most recently. So we were seeing a lot of need in uh, the construction, the trades, and on their job sites because they're large groups of people, especially on some of the bigger uh, construction like hospitals and uh, commercial buildings that are going on. They, they wanted to get those people back in to finish those projects. So those people reached out and uh, we were able to supply a large number of contractors last week. Uh, we did some restaurants. We did uh, some of the food handling people, some of the grocery stores, and but a lot of postal service and a lot of UPS and FedEx. 
So how much do you make now a day, an average amount a day? Do you know? Well, it's kind of changed as of this morning. So we brought in last week a tractor trailer load, uh, about 7,000 gallons. And this morning we brought in a tanker car. And I don't know, but it's probably around that 6,500 to 7,000 gallons. And depending on what the need is this week, we can bring a tanker car a day in. Wow. And how does it distribute out? Do they come and pick it up curbside? Do you, do you uh, drive it to them? Who, how do you get it to them? So we have two operations going. One is uh, when you schedule it with us, you can come in and pick it up here at our tasting room in Eldorado Hills. The other that we're doing with this tanker car is we're making bulk hand sanitizer, putting it into large containers. We refer to them in the industry as totes. They're 275 gallons a piece. And we load up tractor trailers with them and then send them to wherever they're going to be put into smaller containers, whether it's the small four ounce personal size or gallons. So we're doing two sides to the operation. We're bottling and putting in containers for use in our immediate area and then shipping out the other bulk larger quantities to uh, tractor trailers that are going in other areas. So community support, again, that's something that has been uh, a big part of uh, efforts uh, along these lines. So I was wondering in terms of community support that you've been getting, you know, what what have you needed? Have you run short on supplies? Where have people stepped up to help you? Uh, you know, financial assistance, do you have a, uh, you know, like a, a GoFundMe or some kind of crowdfunding thing? Uh, where, where, have you, where do you need help and where have you been getting help from? Well, it's been, it's been really interesting because every day it's changed. So in the beginning, we were making these smaller batches and we would run out of one of the main ingredients. And, and one day uh, we had a phone call uh, from somebody in the medical community and they said, do you need anything? And I, I mentioned, yes, we're out of glycerin. And uh, he said, oh, I happen to have, uh, I think he had three gallons. And if we wouldn't have gotten that three gallons that night, we couldn't have made the next morning's batch, which went immediately out to several police departments that were completely out. And so that was one of the things. My distiller, uh, I had never done much with GoFundMe. And he said, hey, would you mind if I did this? And I said, sure, but I, I don't know what's going to happen with it. And the public was really great. We saw really great response. And that money is what really enabled us to jump up into that bigger phase one delivery of products. So we had all the alcohol in the beginning that we needed, but we didn't have the other products. And, and things like glycerin and hydrogen peroxide are expensive, and uh, they also take special kinds of containers to put them in, and so we had to be really be careful with what we were doing. So do you, do you still need help from people in terms of uh, money or assistance or bringing in supplies that they may have? What do you need still? Now, yeah, now we're, I think we're, we're good on money because we did start to charge because we were told by a lot of companies and agencies that the budget was there. And so one thing that we did is we wanted to make sure if we were going to charge people, what was, what was our cost? And that was really almost impossible to figure out because we were bringing in product from so many places and having to pay surcharges to get it. And so what we decided to do was look and see what was the price per gallon if you bought it in bulk before, and then make sure we did it significantly cheaper than that, and then hope that it worked out. And um, there has been some, some instances where companies are charging, I think, far more than they needed to, uh, but we decided to keep our price as low as possible so that as many people could afford it. And that's kind of where we've operated the whole time is uh, keeping the price low. The thing that I do need help in the public is we were saying no to a lot of people in the beginning and people have gone out and tried to find it uh, and have been unsuccessful. 
now this week, we think that we're going to have enough supply that if somebody's really in need, especially some of the elder care facilities and some of the medical people that uh, we just couldn't get to in the beginning, if there's a need out there, you know, feel free to get in touch. So I don't know if it's too early to look at a business model post-pandemic for what you're doing now, but have you thought about uh, how long you want to keep this going? Uh, is this something that you think you could add on as, a, as another business line or product line to dry diggings? Well, I think at some point we are operating under emergency um, licenses. So the FDA is a very different department than the agencies that I normally deal with, which is the ABC here in the state and then the TTB on the federal level. So to be honest, we've all looked at each other and said, if I never hear the words hand sanitizer again, I'd be okay. Uh, but we're, we're happy to do it, but I don't know that it's, it's part of a long-term business plan but we are discussing with members of uh, the state OES departments and various uh, law enforcement and medical communities. This may not be the last time we have an issue like this. And so what we're going to hopefully do is put together a group where we meet and say, what does the future look like? Uh, rolling out materials like this on a, on a national scale when you, your country is as big as the United States could mean that we would set up some kind of regional ability to do this quickly. Because like I said before, we ramped up in about four hours. It wasn't that hard for us to switch over. And so one of the problems has been in this whole thing is the supply chain, which involves trucks and moving people around. And sometimes that's not as quick to respond. So we're working on what is that next thing as far as jumping into it like we did this time as an emergency response. So that's not really necessarily part of our core business plan. I enjoy making vodka and brandy far greater and whiskey and rum, but uh, this was great to do in the situation that we were given. So what's the future of dry diggings? Because again, like I mentioned up top, that quote you gave to the Sacramento Business Journal, if this is the way my business goes, then I'll be happy with it. Are you feeling more optimistic about the future of dry diggings just based on what you've been doing in the past few weeks and months? I'm more optimistic than I was that first week. Um, because like every small business owner, nobody really knows what's going to happen. Uh, we don't know if there's going to be new rules about tasting rooms. Uh, we don't know if there's going to be the public uh, really being in a mood, so to speak, to go out and visit small businesses like ours. We don't really know. Uh, I will say that uh, the support and the phone calls we're getting, people are saying, don't worry about it. We're going to be here. And that is an overwhelming response. Um, we've got many emails and phone calls to that effect. So it's really a matter of, I don't know what we spent to do all this, and I don't know what we brought in in revenue. So it also depends on some of the things like taxes. Um, alcohol has very high tax rates on it, and we're still waiting for the federal government to make up its mind what will be taxed, what won't be taxed. So there's a lot of unknowns out there. But we're optimistic in the sense that uh, we did the right thing. Our, our feet are underneath us and uh, the lights are still on. So uh, we're going to keep rolling until somebody says you have to stop. So my last question for you is like the deep thought question. You know, what have you learned during this time as a, as a maker of hand sanitizing products, uh, as a business owner, and, and just as a human being? Well, it's, some of it has been really humbling when, when people have come up and said, you know, we use this in our emergency room. You have no idea what an impact it had. It, uh, it makes you feel like, you know, we didn't get into the, this business to do this kind of work. We made the stuff that makes people happy. Um, and so to be given the opportunity to show that our business can make a quick pivot and then provide something that has turned out to be so vital and crucial and play a part in it. Our product 
still is the support mechanism for all the people that are out there really doing the frontline work. Uh, it's it's been great to do, and it's been rewarding. And we've met a lot of people that didn't know who we were or what we did, and uh, that's been fantastic. Let's see. Do you make gin? Yes. Okay. My liquor cabinet is a little short. Obviously, I've had a lot of time <laughs> inside and uh, martini. So when we get the all clear to go about, you know, in the new normal, I will definitely come up and buy a bottle of gin from Dry Diggings. And I also want to say thank you very much for taking time to talk with us today. And uh, I think I speak for many of us when I say we appreciate your efforts and all that you're doing. So thank you very much for that, too. Well, and thanks for getting the word out about, uh, I'd like to give, if I could give one last moment, I can't do any of this without all the people that support me, my wife, uh, two of my, uh, actually all three of my kids have been in here working and my crew and the new Alchemy guys, we've had support uh, even from other states, distillers in other states that have helped us figure out all this. It really has been a huge, huge team effort and uh, it's been fantastic. So, Well, good. Well, we're rooting for you and uh, keep up the good work. Thanks again. All right. Thank you. Hi, this is Caleb Clark, executive producer of California Groundbreakers Podcasts. We're working on more New Normal in California podcasts literally as I speak, but putting them together takes a fair amount of time and money. If you like what you're hearing in this episode and you want to hear more of them, you can help us in two ways. First, consider being a Groundbreaker supporter right now by making a podcast creation donation. Click on the Support California Groundbreakers box on our SoundCloud podcast page or on the Donate tab on the homepage of our website, californiagroundbreakers.org. Also, if you know of a Californian doing some innovative thing during this pandemic time who should be talking about it with us on this podcast, email us at info at californiagroundbreakers.org to give us information about who, where, and why so we can get in touch. We're always looking to get the word out about Groundbreakers who people should know about and support. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the second half of today's episode of The New Normal in California. And a look at a couple of ordinary people who have decided to do some amazing things in the era of COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Vanessa Richardson, Executive Director of California Groundbreakers, along with Caleb Clark, our audio engineer, who is editing these podcasts and making us all sound great. Uh, and we're also here with our guest, Alan Puccinelli, who is, uh, six weeks ago, his day job was CEO of a 3D printing company in Auburn called Repcord. Now he runs the entirely volunteer organization, Operation Shields Up, which makes protective equipment to frontline medical workers and first responders who are facing a shortage of supplies. And with the help of Hacker Lab and Rockland and Tireless Volunteers, Operation Shields makes up to how many, how many shields a day or how many total shields have you done to date, Alan? Yeah, Vanessa. Well, th first of all, thanks for having me. And uh, we have been at it for almost a month now and uh, we're averaging about a thousand a day, wow. which is a pretty amazing output considering I started by myself a month ago, you know, and I think I made 14 when I first started on the first day. And I like how now as you put the, as you call your operation, uh, I think I was reading in a story or an interview you did with a local news station. We're a ragtag group of community people who really care. And it sounds like those oh. are the efforts these days right now that that's what we can help out with. First, I wanted to ask you about Repcord, uh, the company in Auburn that you run or and still run. What does what does Repcord do? Yeah, so Repcord's a 3D printing accessory company. Uh, I don't make actual 3D printers, but I make the um, I, I I sell the consumable that 3D printers use specifically uh, for FDM. So it's uh, it's called filament. It's just plastic. It looks like plastic on, looks like a weed whacker line, honestly, that you would feed into one of these printers, uh, along with a couple of other, uh, parts and, and, uh, accessories for 3d printers. I also sell like, a, 
a storage box for for filament and some other things like that. So it's kind of a niche thing, uh, but it's a really neat industry. It's up and coming. Obviously, we read a lot about 3D printing and, and its impact, and it's definitely gotten thrown into the limelight uh, in, in the, the pandemic times here. And then I'm going to ask, you know, is it, is it one day you woke up, you saw the headlines, and you decided, I'm going to do something about this, I'm going to pivot, I'm going to, I'm going to make a, a protective equipment for frontline workers? What, what sparked the idea, and what made you yeah. decide, I'm going to do this? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, it's and it, it was never quite that you know epiphany moment for me. Uh, I I was paying attention to, uh, so I'm I'm really big uh, in the 3D printing community online. Um, you know, just following people on Twitter and and have relationships with other companies. And the uh, the gentleman that actually did the design uh, the, of the face shield that we're using is based out of the Czech Republic, and they're a little bit ahead of us in terms of. Um, you know, the impact of, of the virus there. And so we, we kind of had a nice playbook, right? I've just kind of been paying attention to his posts and what he was talking about and what his company was doing. And um, they got the shield design validated by their ministry of health in the Czech, Czech Republic. Uh, and I thought, well, that that's smart. There was a lot of there was a lot of drama going around at the time about 3D printed masks and other things that that could potentially be doing more harm than good by giving a false sense of security. And so Joseph Prusa, the individual who designed and his engineering team, the the team that designed this shield, uh, said, "I'm not going to get drawn into that." But you know, we have a huge print farm, which is basically thousands of 3D printers, like creating parts for the 3D printers that they actually sell. Uh, and he decided to pivot his production. And I basically followed his lead knowing that we were probably going to have a same shortage uh, that they did. Um, so I made a couple to start and got in touch with some local ER docs and uh, handed them to him and said, uh, you know, I hear that this is what's going on in, in Europe. Is this of use to you guys? And very quickly, uh, it was, oh my gosh, uh, how many of these can you make and how quickly can you get them to us? Uh, so it was like hit the ground running. Um, it, I keep saying it's like I grabbed a tiger by the tail and been going ever since, trying to hold on ever since. And then for face shields, I think many of us have seen them in pictures. And remind us who uses them. Obviously, the ER doctors that you talk to, all types of medical yeah. workers out in the on the front line, so to speak. Who who uses mm -hmm. these? Yeah, yeah. So certainly, uh, ER doctors and, and nurses, ICU. Uh, you know, th those are those are where we kind of started our focus because they're in front of like active. COVID patients and at the highest amount of risk. Uh, but then also there are, uh, for example, we've given a bunch to SAC Metro Fire now who uh, is in charge of going out and doing testing. Uh, that's a really invasive process when you're swabbing and it causes people to cough and they had nothing to basically protect them. Uh, so, so first responders in, in that regard. Um, but then we've had requests from every from transit workers to the police to fire to um, uh, to even everyday people there's something about the shield that is very psychological for a lot of people that you know makes them feel like I've got this active barrier in front of me right and so I think a lot of people want it maybe that don't need it necessarily it's not designed to be a replacement for a mask or for goggles it's a supplement um but like i said there's something tangible about having that that shield in front of you and it looks it just like you described just for people listening it's uh if you're if you're ever in woodworking or if you've been to the dentist office we've given a lot of these to actual um dentists that are still having to do emergency dental surgery and stuff like that that can't actually get these and they normally have them where uh, you know, I don't know if you've seen, like, if you go, the, the hygienist will oftentimes wear something like this uh, to pr protect themselves in, in normal times. Um, and so, you know, being able to supply uh, them as as we've met the need of hospitals and stuff, we're starting to expand our reach out to uh, meet other other requests and demands. This question came up with uh, Caleb, who I mentioned at the top, uh, our executive producer, about um, medical equipment in general has to be so, uh, they have to follow strict guidelines to make sure that they're, you know, uh, uh, safe and um, they, they right. so, you know, obviously there's state guidelines or federal guidelines. Do you need to meet any of those that are legally usable? Have you, are there any concerns like, uh, 
any batch that you send out to a new group of people may not meet those requirements? Or is that kind of out the window in this time of pandemic? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a good question. And it's one I get a lot. So we're, we're in a period of what I call battlefield medicine, where um, a lot of those restrictions have been lifted. I mean, you've been paying attention, like everything from like HIPAA to the requirement for actually having any PPE were, were lifted at one point uh, to allow for basically anything uh, to come in because they were that, that desperate. That said, uh, we are very um, mindful of safety and and those requirements and stuff. And we happened to uh, partner with our local medical society who has all of the contacts with the hospitals and they have facilitated the distribution uh, which, which has given us legitimacy and and respect amongst the medical community that, that we are producing a, a safe and high quality product. That said, um, there's been kind of a lot of working backwards into it. So the model that we're designing, again, this isn't my design, but it's uh, it's been validated by a couple different entities now. Um, and you'll see a lot of uh, discussion to like the NIH has actually been approving a lot of the things that are going around everything from some of these masks to, to shields and other things. And, and then individual, uh, you know, like UCLA medicine and, and, uh, there's a Michigan Department of Health or whatever are kind of issuing advisories in terms of what they're willing to accept. So it's kind of been left up to the individual entities to decide, but we got lucky early on in that we kind of validated from the ground up from, you know, the end user uh, and um, we're not looking to be long-term you know, we're supposed to be a stopgap solution, right? And so we don't have to necessarily go by the NIOSH approvals and all that stuff. And I suspect as this gets caught up and, and whatnot, we'll start to see, you know, those regulations start to, to change and maybe get specifications. But right now the need's been so great. They're just like, this is working. Yes, keep giving them to us. So walk us through the process. I, th I guess in normal times, these, these would all be created in, in one room or, you know, you'd have people collaborating together in person, but this all seems to be a remote or a very small group of people in one room because it's a pandemic and, and we have a, the, the shutdown. But uh, just for, for in layman's terms, for those of us who, you know, have seen the shield but doesn't know what goes on behind it, uh, yeah, what does it take to make uh, one of these or a batch of these? You know, you know, the beauty of this design, it's, it's very elegant in its simplicity. And it's funny because I think a lot of people don't even appreciate the amount of engineering that went into this the design. It's only four parts. Uh, there is a, a basically a frame that is either 3D printed or now injection molded. Uh, there is the lens. So think about the lens of your sunglasses or your glasses or something like that. That's the big piece of plastic that is really like the barrier piece, right? And then there's a little uh, chip, on uh, a clip, excuse me, not a chip, a clip on the bottom that kind of helps hold shape uh, at the bottom. So the frame holds the roundness so it wraps around your face at the top. And then there's a chin clip that kind of holds that same shape at the bottom. And then there's just a piece of elastic or now we're using uh, some, some uh, plastic strapping that you might think of like your baseball cap kind of thing where it's adjustable and, and uh, the we've we've done some tweaks on the fly based on the feedback we've gotten from hospitals and stuff because they're normally this would be a disposable thing but they're having to disinfect and reuse and so they want us to use materials that allow us to do that uh, so we've kind of moved away from the buttonhole elastic, which, you know, people have seen before, like think about your suspenders or something like that, where there's a piece of elastic and that's been the adjustable piece. So there's a cleat on either side of the frame that allows the elastic to be adjusted to fit to different size heads uh, to this plastic piece, which, which has been uh, greatly preferred by the, the healthcare workers, especially because they're having to bleach wipe everything. And that's a lot easier to deal with than fabric pieces. Yes. So I, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but I, I was wondering uh, about whether these were single use and the whole entire yeah. mask or recyclable, because that would add up. It does. It, it does. And so we just, when we, you know, pick the materials to use and actually when, when Prusa originally sourced it, you know, he, he chose materials that are, uh, that hold up to bleach and to alcohol so that they can be re used repeatedly. But I would say that in an ideal situation that, like I said, they're designed to be a single use thing. Um, 
they will and then have uh, honestly we've had we've had nurses and stuff telling us they've been using them for for weeks and bleach wiping them it's not ideal but until they can get more replacements that's the battlefield medicine i'm talking about we're using what we have on hand and then hacker lab in rockland it sounds to uh, like a big partner so do yeah. you actually produce or manufacture there is that where some of the work is done how do they come in so, so hacker lab has been just super support so the, the reason we got started with hacker lab was you know my my business uh, is is relatively in its infancy i'm fresh out of my garage as i like to say and i moved over to hacker lab to get some co-working space and access to uh, the awesome equipment and stuff that they have um and so that's how i got started there but i i literally started by just one day I went downstairs and I started cutting and um, putting together some of these things that I was making. And then other members saw what I was doing and they asked if they could help. And one became two, became four, became eight, became 10. And it's, you know, since then turned into volunteers from all over the community that have come to the hacker lab to help us with either assembly uh, or fabrication. So depending, uh, you know, I, I kind of glossed over the making process, but the frames, as I was mentioning before, those are, those start, we started with 3d printed and a lot of them still are, um, but 3d printing is a really slow process. So there's some people in the labs that help us run the 3d printers. The lens piece is laser cut with, you know, giant sheets of plastic that I've procured from my plastic supplier that I use for non-pandemic time activities. Uh, and we, we started doing all of this in the hacker lab and then very quickly, um, it started to become almost overwhelming with the amount of people that wanted to help. And so we kind of had to step back and create some organization to the whole thing and get a core team of managers together. Like a business. Some of, the, some of the less glamorous stuff, but highly necessary because, um, you know, it, it, it was very much like herding cats early on, like people were doing different things, not knowing what's going on. The quality control was, you know, questionable. And so, you know, a lot of the, the work has been in, in organizing and, um, you know, I keep saying this isn't a making problem. It's a logistics problem. It's very much that way. So to do it at scale is requires just a whole different skill set than your average you know maker in the hacker lab uh, has but that you know that said um were it not for the energy and abilities and um of all the people that that were in the hacker lab that help us get started uh you know we wouldn't be here uh and we've since grown to two more locations now where we're doing uh assembly and cleaning and intake uh, at our local bayside church campus they've been a huge partner um, I mentioned that the, the, uh, Sierra Sacramento Valley Medical Society has been a huge partner for us for our distribution. Uh, they're also our nonprofit arm for, uh, funneling all the donations to, to cover because we, there are still costs obviously associated with this. We do still have to pay for materials and, and order things. So they've been a big partner. And then the city of Rockland, uh, stepped forward just, uh, uh, last week and offered us use of their uh, community center, which is now our, our next site where we're, we're also doing all of this as well. So it's just, like I said, a, a just amazing story of community outreach. And um, it's just, it, I'm awestruck and inspired by just how many people want to help and, and the ways that they've offered help. And, and where, where do you need help from still? I think for, Many of us who have read about your efforts and want to help, we have time, we may have money, yeah. Um, yeah. we may have skills that you may need. What are, what are you still looking for in terms of help? Sure, sure. So the, the biggest one, like as we've kind of got, developed a really good system, honestly, is funding. Um, we, we still have a lot of raw materials. We've gotten a lot of stuff donated, but um, part of the challenge that we're starting to experience is that uh, we've been at it, like I said, for almost a month. And so like, a lot of our volunteers um, have to unfortunately, you know, fall off to, to go um, try to find work again and, and all of that stuff. And so uh, we, we, while we are uh, still a hundred percent volunteer based, um, my challenge right now is retention and trying to figure out how to make this somewhat more sustainable. Um, so it may well come to a point where we're, we're at least going to be doing some job creation to help, uh, uh, have people help us. So that's obviously important. Um, but, but big picture wise, uh, volunteers is always helpful as well. As a result, it's just one of the challenges of doing this, like with an arm tied behind your back is I can't just get a hundred people in a room 
doing this. And so we've, like I said, having these little satellite locations and having to staff those and having managerial teams to like be the foreman for each of those things like uh, has become the challenge. Um, unfortunately, as you see more of this in the news, the attention seems to be kind of fading away. But the problem is, is the need isn't shifting at all. Like we're still feeding a bottomless pit of need. Like they're t- getting taken as quickly as we can make them. And we've made uh, just under 14,000 at this point. Um, and we're doing about a thousand a day on average, depending on how well we can keep up with materials. Uh, so as, as we are able to make more and we kind of expand our reach, we'd started in this, the Sacramento area, but as people have seen like, wow, this is a legitimate operation. Like we've expanded further. And so we have stuff as far as New York city now, Ohio, uh, some in the Bay area, you know, and thankfully there's other entities that are able to help with this as well. But as much as we keep reading in the news that, you know, Google and Apple are going to come in and they have, um, it's still, not enough. Uh, and the nature of the virus and how it propagates um, means that even if we meet our regional demand, which we haven't yet, um, we've already been involved in teaching either other other facilities uh, how to do what we're doing, or we're working on putting together these packs now where we can jumpstart an operation uh, in other places. Um, I just got a call about it was three days ago now from doctors without borders in Puerto Rico. And they're like, can you teach us how to do this? Which is huge and amazingly flattering because I'm like, I, you know, who am I to say <laughs> that this is the end all be all way, but we've been effective and it's working. And uh, there's been a number of entities in Alabama and LA and other that, that we've taught how to do this too. So there's a lot of work still to be done. <laughs> yes. Uh, I read in this uh, news interview you did early, well, late March. So it's been a couple of weeks at least. Um, but it sounded like you were getting three to four hours of sleep a day. Has that changed? Like, how do you keep yourself going uh, during pandemic time getting a thousand shields out a day? You know, uh, adrenaline is an amazing thing. Um, I get fantastic photos and testimonials from and thank yous uh, from people in the field. Um, one of the things that we're doing that's just, as far as I know, unprecedented is we've been crowdsourcing uh, a lot of our materials. And so people from all over the world, not even just country now, have been 3D printing stuff and sending it to us. Um, and uh, I know a lot of people are probably hearing that and like, wait a minute, you got a lot of hands on stuff that's coming, which is one of the reasons I think we were you know, given the considered as legitimate as we are, uh, we treat everything that we get coming in our doors as if it's been infected. And so it immediately gets logged and then put in our disinfection um, wash uh, per CDC standards and stuff like that. But what I was going to say was everybody that's been sending us stuff is just sending us all these amazing notes, like, thank you for doing what you're doing. And like, that's just an incredibly motivating force. Um, I just got an email from uh, a nurse in, in New York City today, which was just, um, I don't know, like it gets me emotional like a lot of the time that it was like, you know, we had nothing, like we still, you know, she's, she's with 500 other travel nurses that are from all over the country and they're not considered, you know, kind of part of the normal system and so they feel forgotten and so we got some to them and, you know, she was handing them out on their bus ride to their various hospitals and different places in New York uh, this morning. And just everybody uh, was like, uh, like everybody gets emotional about it and it's hard not to. It's, it's really strange thinking about how we have, you know, these frontline caregivers uh, that are actually there because a lot of the people they're replacing have been affected by COVID now. Uh, and, and they don't have the gear that they need. Uh, and I mean, how could I not want to just, you know, keep, producing these. And so, you know, there'll be plenty of time to sleep when all this is over, but uh, it's gotten a little bit better. You know, I can't burn myself out and my team, you know, we, we, we've gotten better in the, in the coming days about a little better self-care, probably not where we should be. You know, I get a solid six at least now. (laughs) It's not bad. As a business owner, I mean, it's probably too early to think about whether this could turn into a a permanent thing, but I mean, do you think about this based on what you're telling us all about um, the the need and the calls you're getting in? Um, have you given any thought to, you know, once the pandemic is over, we get the all clear or you know, um, uh, things change? 
will Operation Shield, Operation Shields up still be there, do you think? Are you going to, thinking about expanding it to other types of supplies? Maybe there's something here that could stay on. What are, do you have any thoughts about uh, mid and long-term plans? Oh, I, I have plenty of thoughts. Um, yeah, uh, it's, um, it's the million dollar question. You know, the first, the first couple of weeks I was thinking about, wow, I mean, this is insane, but I, I, I you know, I, I still have a mortgage to pay and all of these other things. Like, how am I going to, um, how is this ever going to end? And nobody knows, you know, um, but I think it's become clear just in operating over the last couple of weeks that this is not just going to turn off and life is not going to be the way that it was. Right. And so, um, because we have, have, um, been given a lot of the resources that we have and a lot of the attention that we have, um, we will very easily be at this for for probably the next three four months in some capacity, uh, just um, either meeting local demand, then expanding that reach, and p- potentially as an advisory role for other entities as the you know virus propagates in different areas. Uh, but then, obviously, we don't know if this is a seasonal thing and and what that's going to entail. So you know, as a business owner, my mind is thinking like, well, this isn't normally what I do, but I'll tell you what, uh, people aren't really buying 3D printing accessories right now. And so I do need to think about how uh, to operate in a sustainable way. Uh, the, the partnership that we have with the local medical society has been just immense for us because that allows us uh, some ability to fundraise as a nonprofit arm of what we do. Uh, but we've been approached now for, for, you know, basically to see if we can produce other things uh, that are in high demand gowns and um, masks and, and even those little clips, those little ear safer clips so that the surgical masks aren't pulling on, you know, there's all kinds of neat little things. And I'll be honest, I mean, the world that we're going into as, as the economy opens back up again and businesses open back up again, you know, the demand for um, things to prevent infection uh, or, or contact is going to be high. And so we've already started prototyping things. I mean, we've seen a little bit of it and you go to the grocery store and you see the little barrier that's between you and the checker now. And those are all things that are either, you know, laser cut or milled out of the same kind of plastics that we're already working with. And so we already have some, <clears throat> some prototypes and designs we've you know done for that. And we're going to start to see those everywhere. And it, I say, Unfortunately, but I think that's going to be the new normal for for a period of time now. And so there there is certainly opportunity. And as more people have have come on board, and there's a lot of people that have been with me since day one, I feel kind of the weight of of um, you know uh, potentially giving them some employment and stuff to do because most of them have been laid off or furloughed. And and so you know I take very seriously, like trying to help in as many different ways as we can, but obviously giving people a sense of purpose and a meaningful way to help. And, and obviously jobs is all, uh, you know, uh, probably the untold part of the story too, that, that's been really important. Yes. And I guess full disclosure, if we didn't mention up top, uh, obviously this is all volunteer and you are donating all the, the, the supplies that you, you make. So there's no money coming in really oats to fund the operations and the supply not not at this time although that's that's something that's going to have to pivot because like i said if we're going to be able to continue to do this you know most people can't afford to just volunteer a month of their time you know to do that and so we're working on creating a sustainable way and so so there's there's obviously we've we've been we've done okay uh fundraising but you know as a business owner i know that i can't rely on on fundraising to be a sustainable business model and so you know there are aspects and and unfortunately there's a lot of sensitivity around people trying to profiteer and all of that stuff and so finding a way to do it uh ethically and responsibly and sustainably is an interesting challenge uh we will always have so for just to be clear the shields part of what we do is not my design i cannot it, ethically sell that ever. It is not for sale. It is a, a donation driven system. The terms of the licensing that Prusa laid out is uh, you're certainly allowed to cover your costs for what you're doing. And that, that unfortunately has changed from just materials. Now, as we kind of go forward, we're like, well, is there going to, there's going to have to be some labor costs. Like I've run out of, you know, um, volunteers that 
uh, are, are able to cut laser cut as fast as we can. So we have to like go out and either hire people to laser cut because uh, it's kind of a skilled thing or we have to buy already laser cut stuff and we're doing a little bit of each but obviously that's not a profit thing. That's just covering our costs for, you know, doing all that stuff. And so, um, while, while we, we are and have been 100% volunteer based at some point, we're going to have to pivot where we do need a management team that's going to contribute to overhead, which is still cost, you know, that's, and that's not talking about profit on top of that, of course. It sounds like, yes, as we were talking about, this is, we're entering a new normal, uh, uh, a coronavirus industry could be the new normal or um, uh, we see the need for medical equipment and gear that hospitals and frontline workers need. So this is definitely an area where a lot of ramping up and supplying will need to be done in the future. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, to be clear too, I think that there's, there's ways to do it sustainably. Like our, the fact that we have a nonprofit arm of what we do is that is focused and has dedicated accountant and all that stuff, transparency, um, because we've seen a lot of people. And I, I think that, a lot of people haven't gotten a lot of traction a lot of people are just trying to, um, sell stuff online for, you know, exorbitant, uh, you know, amounts. And, you know, my first reaction was this is insane because, you know, we have a bunch of people, you know, volunteering and all their time. And then when somebody like Shapeways is trying to sell these things for 40 bucks a pop, you're like, well, that's, that's just not right. But at the same time as a business owner, it's like, I've kind of stepped back and I'm like, look, I can understand that people are trying to keep their people employed and stuff. I don't think it needs to be $40 a piece, but there, there are definitely, um, I've I backed off on that a little bit because because I like I said I think the important part about about this story is is keeping people you know in employed and giving them work and so I understand that that's going to add cost to things as well, um, but you know it's it's a challenge for sure. My last question for you is, I guess uh, when you look back at you know. The, the past, six weeks ago or so, when you started this and, and to now and looking forward, what, you know, what, I guess this is the what have you learned moment. Uh, this is the what have you learned question. What have you learned um, as a business owner, as someone who's put together uh, a, a group of volunteers, uh, as a human being during this time? What are, what are some things that you just, you learned now that you, you know, that's a really great question. So, so the first, the first thing is, you know, don't, don't underestimate people's willingness to help that there's a lot of good that's happening out there and having, you know, programs like yours that are focusing on that, I think is really important. Um, the, the outpouring of support from everybody from volunteers and donors to the, you know, the restaurants and the catering companies that have been bringing us food and, and just people want to help and people are good. Like we, we've, we hear so much in the news, the doom and gloom and all that stuff. And um, it's, it's interesting for me, a challenge has been, there's been, we've been drowning in love <laughs> to some extent <laughs> and finding a way to, to wield that in a meaningful way and try to let everybody that can help help. Uh, that said, um, there is a, 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 it is a challenge to vet people that are, what their intentions are and who is really going to be able to help. And, you know, um, that, that has been the biggest learning experience for me because unfortunately we've had a couple of entities come forward and say that they want to do stuff and that they're great. And we're like, okay, good, let's, let's go, let's do it. And then there's crickets and it's no follow through. And then it feels like we're wasting time and they're actually hindering the process when we could have been pursuing a different, you know, thing. And so trying to get the, you know, separate the signal from the noise is always a challenge because people see this on the news and they, they think I've got a 3d printer. This is great. I can print a bunch and I'll just waltz into the hospital and I'll hand it to, you know, them. And so organizing, setting expectations, anytime you get a bunch of engineers together uh, working on a problem, the first thing they want to do is redesign everything. And so getting them to focus. And I always say makers are great at making one or two of something, but making thousands of something, not so much, you know, that's not glamorous to a lot of them. And so learning how to lead and to manage uh, is, is the, you know, the logistical challenges that I talk about that has allowed us to be effective, that we've come together and organized, that we've had great strategic partnerships. So we're not trying to reinvent the wheel and do all this ourselves. It's like, who, who do we know that does this already? You know, trying to 
problem solve in that way. Um, that's, that's really what's, what's effective. And that's, what's allowed us to model stuff that have uh, given us the ability to teach others to do it well too. And it's not, it's not easy. It looks like it's four pieces, but there's way more to it than that, obviously. Well, for those of you who have listened to this conversation with Alan and you think you have the chops and the skills to join his ragtag group of community people who really care, we will include links to Operation Shields Up uh, on our website and on our podcast page uh, because I, I think there is definitely the Operation Shields Up page. If there's uh, crowdfunding, other, other links, we'll get them from, mm -hmm. from you, Alan. It's all on our website, opshieldsup.org. Yep. Sounds good. And and, and again, thank you for coming on to talk with us about Operation Shields Up. And thank you again for all your efforts. Uh, they are very important and very inspiring. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on and thanks for helping us get the word out. You've been listening to California Groundbreakers. This episode of The New Normal in California with Chris Steller and Alan Puccinelli was recorded on April 19th, 2020. Thanks to Chris and Alan for taking the time to talk with us about their inspiring projects. And thanks also to their volunteers and financial supporters who are helping them succeed. And like Alan mentioned in his conversation, Operation Shields Up still needs all types of help in making protective gear for medical workers. Find out how you can help by going to their website, opshieldsup.org. As always, thanks to Caleb Clark at Kickstart Audio for recording and producing this podcast. And of course, thanks to you for listening. If you find our podcasts worth listening to in these difficult times, consider making a donation and supporting our efforts to produce more informative, inspiring conversations about how Californians are coping with the new normal. You can do that, as well as keep tabs on upcoming podcast episodes, our live events, whenever it's safe to do them again, and other information about us by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org. 